Hello and welcome to the Teacher Takeaway podcast. This is season three, episode 18, and I am your host, Alice Vigors, and I'm flying solo for this episode. I don't have any of my co-hosts with me uh, for this chat, but never fear, I have an awesome guest to join me for a discussion all about problem solving in mathematics. Before I introduce our guest, I'd just like to say a big thank you to all of our listeners for their wonderful words around all of the episodes that we've had so far this season and the amazing guests we've talked about. There's been lots of depth to the discussions that we've had and we appreciate your feedback that you've been sending in. So keep on sending in those wonderful words to us. We're looking at problem solving in mathematics in this episode, and we're going to unpack the inquiry question, why is mathematical proficiency essential in the mathematics classroom? And I'm joined by the wonderful Paul Stanisia. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's all right. Thanks for joining me for this conversation. Now, a little bit about Paul before we dive into our discussion. He's currently the Deputy Head of Primary at Southern Cross Grammar in Melbourne's West. He also works as a consultant for MAV and has written various articles for their Prime Number Journal. Paul is passionate about the professional learning of pre-service teachers and uses his real-life experiences as a sessional academic. In 2019, he was recognised by ASIL as a new voice in school leadership and continues to work with ASIL through publications and as part of their editorial board. Having completed a Master's of Educational Leadership, he values a culture of relational trust when working with teachers in evidence-based learning and teaching, both in Australia and overseas. Paul utilises various, uh, sorry, utilises previous classroom teaching experiences as well as effective leadership practices when collaborating with teachers in using data to identify student need and impact of teaching. Wow, what a bio, Paul. Some pretty impressive work there. Yeah, it's it's always interesting hearing it back. So, yes, I think you, you read that out perfectly, so thank you. <laughs> nice thank you. Um, before I hit you with some questions around problem solving in mathematics, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your journey so far as an educator? Yeah, so I guess you, uh, you cover a lot of it there. I, um, I work as a, a, a deputy head of primary over, in Southern, over at Southern Coast Grammar, and that's in Melbourne's uh, west. Yep. Um, personally, I've got uh, married two little girls, one's a five-year-old and, and I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old. Now, five-year-old's with me at my school, which is great. It's nice having her and seeing her in her foundation year. So it's been really exciting for me. Um, at a professional level, I guess my journey in education has been quite a fun one. So started out like all of us as a classroom teacher and, you know, really enjoyed that. Started out in year three, four composite class and I, I love being there and I think um that's where my initial spark of learning started I um, loved being there every day and, and just enjoyed being with my students and as time went on I guess maths became a bit of a passion of mine it was always something that I loved um and explored and really um started doing a lot of research around it at a very early on stage in my career just so I get the best out of my students. I guess at the time when I'm, I've uh, worked in Catholic Ed for well, about 15 years or so. <clears throat> and in that time, I obviously was a classroom teacher, moved into leadership roles. I was a maths leader in my own school, but then 
um, an ICT leader as well, and then moved into a deputy principal role there and even an acting principal role for just under two years. So um, opportunities came and I sort of embraced and took them on. Um, but also with that, I was really quite lucky in the schools I've worked in. So like I said, I was in, in Catholic Ed for quite some time and, and worked in there, but then an opportunity came up in independent school and I you know, thought now's the time to to change systems and see what the other systems like. And it's something I always wanted to do. It's been a really nice um, step for me, which has been really exciting and shown me, you know, education is education, but it is a new world and different world. And that's also been, um, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? It's been a bit inspirational, a bit exciting for me to see that different system and see how things work and operate in that system. Yeah. Um, probably for the last five or so years, I've been really lucky in the sense I've got to do some consulting as well. Um, which started, as my bio said, which started with Maths, the Maths Association Victoria, did a fair bit of work with them quite some time ago. And it sort of evolved from there. So I worked with some leadership teams across schools, mainly around middle level leadership and looking at in particular what collaborative um, planning conversations and protocols look like. Um, but I also get to do a bit of writing for ASTOL and um, a bit of my own work in, in various schools, a lot around maths, but a lot around just general learning and teaching as well, which is really exciting for me. So I've had quite an exciting journey and then I get to be in different areas um, as well. And as my wife said, I get to work with pre-service teachers. So I do some session work at, at um, ACU, Australian Catholic yeah. Uni here over in Melbourne. And I'm, I'm loving that as well. So I've been doing that for the last two or three years now. And yeah, getting to explore teaching and learning with pre-service teachers is just as exciting as working um, with teachers within school. So yeah, lo loving what I'm doing and I'm, I'm quite lucky and I know that I'm quite lucky in that. Yeah, I love the depth of your experience too. Like you've had lots of different experience. Like you said, you were in different systems and you know, even though education is education, every system is has their slightly different nuances. And I know like I've worked in the Catholic system and, and um, in public education and just the slight way they choose to go about their core business is just it's fascinating yeah and that's probably the better word i was looking for fascinating just yeah. really fascinating um, yeah. and i've loved every bit of it so yeah it's been really good yeah perfect all right let's dive in got a meaty question for you what is mathematical proficiency how would you sum that up <laughs> <laughs> oh at I get asked this a lot and it's really hard to capture it in uh, in, in one sentence. Um, for me, mathematical proficiency, when we look at it, it's basically, in its simplest form, it's being a mathematician. Um, so being mathematically proficient, we need to view ourselves as doers of mathematics pretty much. Um, now, if we look at mathematical proficiency, if I go a little bit deeper into that, mathematical proficiency, I guess, is... Um, Explore through five strands, um, understanding, fluency, reasoning, problem solving, which are all in our curriculum, but something that is in disposition. Um, and these proficiency strands are actually interwoven and interrelated within each other. So what that means really is that one's not more important than the other. So for a student to be proficient in mathematics, um, we need to be not only exploring each of those five proficiency strands together, um, but also we need to be providing them opportunities to develop those five strands together as well and not in isolation. Um, so if I was to sum up mathematical proficiency, it's that idea that 
you know, um, I'm, I am a doer of mathematics. I've got the skills and the understanding to be a mathematician. And, and we've all got that. Maths is in our world all the time. And, and we, we experience maths every single day. Um, so we are all doers of mathematics. It's about building that understanding that you are a doer of mathematics. But there's some elements of that that need to be explored with that, like understanding, fluency, reasoning, and, and problem solving, as I said. How, so say I'm a teacher or I'm a new teacher um, or somebody who's not confident in the mathematics space, how would I go about making sure that I'm providing students with those proficiencies and making sure that the lessons that I deliver really build that in students? Yeah, so I, I guess for me, this is a bit I love talking about. Um, and a lot of the work I do in mathematical proficiency is exactly around this. So how I see this is um, it all starts with a path and a rich task in, in that. Um, so really, as a teacher, how we want to be seeing mathematics is, yes, we have content and, you know, we have content strands in our curriculum. At the moment, they're number and algebra, measurement, geometry, statistical probability. Um, and we tend to teach around that content. So, you know, I might be teaching fractions or I might be teaching addition or I might, might be teaching shape, whatever it may be. And then, I'm not saying anything wrong with that. It's actually the right thing to do. We need to, our students need to understand and unpack that content. But what I actually um, think also within that is sometimes we can be jumping from one content strand to another. Mm. We can also be jumping from one proficiency strand to another sometimes even within the one problem, and that's okay, it's probably good. Um, to do that, we need to be using really rich tasks. Um, and I like to call them problem-solving tasks to make things simpler for teachers. So we, we should be engaging in tasks that are rich, but a problem. Um, so let's say, you know, Paul had, Paul had five lollies and Alice had three, how many lollies they have all together. It's a word of problem, but it's not really a problem-solving task. I'm not gonna be really getting deeply into it and trying to unpack it. Um, so when we start with a problem, that changes the shape and shift of our lesson. Now, when we start with a problem, though, we know that it's not going to be challenging for all of our students because that's what we want it to be. We want it to be challenging in some way where the answer is just not, oh, it's eight. Yeah. Um, now, to do that for all of our learners in our classroom, we probably need to start to you know, use some enabling and extending prompts as well within that problem. So if I've got a main, I call it a main task. If I've got a main task, I need to think about the learners within my classroom and create enabling and extending prompts for that. Um, so they're, they're pretty much scaffolds or supports to extend thinking. So an enabling prompt is really, well, how do you scaffold the learning so that a student can engage in a similar problem, and if they solve that problem, they can use the same strategies to solve that main task. So that main task might be solved in the same lesson or, or tomorrow's lesson maybe. Yeah. Um, and we can do that by, you know, changing the range of numbers, simplifying the problem in some way. There's many ways we can explore that or, or do that. Um, within that main task, though, we want to extend students' thinking as well because, as I said, we, it's not going to provide a challenge to all of our learners in our classroom. So it's more, when we extend the task um, or, you know, grand extending prompt within our classroom, it's not about more work. Um, what tends to happen in those classrooms is students will pretty quickly cotton on that um, my teacher's just giving me more work. So I'll hang back for a good you know, 20 minutes, complete the task because I know I can, and then you know, show my teacher that I've done it right at the end and then everyone's happy. Um, so what we want that extending prompt to do is actually extend thinking. Yeah. So you know, ways we can do that is we want the main task still, and sometimes we want those students to, you know, attempt that main task and use that solution to extend their thinking. 
Other times we might provide an extending prompt that, you know, stretches their thinking by once again, we might change the range of the numbers, we might add a step in, um, we might get them to use visuals or materials to show their thinking to make it more challenging. So there's many ways we can create um, enabling extending prompts. And I could talk for a couple of hours on that alone. So I won't go into that too much in too much detail. Um, but basically, in essence, what we want to be doing is we want to be having a problem within our classroom. Yep. And then so that we provide challenge for all of our learners, we then develop enabling and extending prompts so that there's challenge across you know, our, our complex classrooms or the challenge of providing challenge for all of our learners. Um, now, within that, when students solve problems, um, my big thing is that we need to, um, I guess, give them the language to solve problems. And there's a few yeah. ways we need to do that. One being they need to be aware and understand and know how to use problem-solving strategies. Um, so things like guest check and improve, act it out, draw a picture, make a list or table. There's many out there. There's probably 10 um, in total that we can sort of pack and put together. And what we want is those strategies to be like a toolkit, like so that when I'm dealing with this challenge or when I'm involved in a challenging or a problem-solving task, I know I can rely on, you know, one or many of these strategies. So, yes, I might solve a problem that involves addition and I may use a number line to help me do that, um, but that's a mathematical strategy I'm using. I'm also suggesting that our students also need to know the problem-solving strategies. I might draw a picture to help me do that. I might act it out. I might have to make a list, as I said before. Yeah. So we want to be right from foundation through to years because I'm talking about a primary school in this context, um, we want our, in our classroom our students to know what those problem-solving strategies are. And yes, that's going to look different in each year level. So in foundation, we may only unpack, you know, draw a picture or act it out or guess check and improve. But then by the time our students are in year six, we want that toolkit to be full of strategies that not only they know the language of, but they also know how to use. Um, so once we've got those strategies in place, I guess in our classrooms, if we're going to be unpacking problems with our students, we want them to, um, I guess, know how to problem solve. Um, and there's you know, heaps of resources out there on how you know, students problem solve or how kids problem solve. Um, and it goes it's, you know, back dated to you know, the 80s, even the earlier with the work of George Polyer, who talks about, well, you need to understand the problem, then you need to devise a plan, then you need to carry out that plan, and then you need to look back. Um, for me, in a primary school and working with so many um, primary school students from the age of five to you know, the 13, um, I think there's actually a bit more to it than that. Yes, we need to understand the problem. Yeah. And within that, we probably need to clarify some unfamiliar words. We may need to visualise it in some way. We also then need to identify what's relevant and irrelevant in that problem. And I like to you know, show students study skills like, okay, let's underline or highlight that important information so that when we go back to it, we know what that is. So we, you know, we're reducing that cognitive load on that. Yeah. Then want students to select the strategy. And that being one of those problem solving strategies, hence why I want them to have the language around it, but also know how to use them mm. uh, so that they are prepared in some way with a toolkit, like I said, to attempt those problems. Um, then like George Polly says, I think we should carry out the plan. I call that take action. We give, the, we give it a go, we, we try. Um, we try the problem, we may need to adapt or change our strategy depending on you know, how successful we think it's going. Um, and then once we think we've solved the problem, we need to look back. We need to see if we've solved the problem. And I love, um, there's a lot of amazing um, language frames and sentence starters on the New South Wales 
Department of Education website that I'm taking all the time and using because they're really powerful in thinking about how we look back. And then if we're truly problem solving, um, we then need to be able to explain, justify and share our solutions. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's one of the big things, one of the big challenges across many classrooms. Um, and, and that for me is sort of, if we're going to be problem solving, that's what we need to be doing. We need to be explaining, justifying and sharing our solutions. But to be able to do that, we need to you know, go through all those steps I just suggested, but also have the language to do that. So hence why we really need to unpack those, um, those strategies that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, I think that that's really important. Like I, I know in my context, um, in just today we were talking about the, the importance of students having that mathematical language to be able to interpret what problems are asking them to do and and like you said what's relevant information and what's what's not and I love that idea of having that mathematical toolkit and I, I see it quite often in a math in the mathematics classroom you know not just in my context but in other contexts that I've worked with and with teachers that that I've spoken to and worked with around you know oftentimes you get to the senior years and they're like oh you know they just want to use a an algorithm or you know they don't have other strategies and other things in their toolkit that they can go to when when problems get challenging so I really like that you've shared that uh, with our listeners yeah yeah and I love that example you just mentioned too, that students go to an algorithm and I love mm. that there's a whole big uh, bunch of they're called open middle problems and basically how they work is you know there's it's set up like an algorithm, but there's missing digits everywhere. And students have to sort of manipulate and, and regroup and rename numbers to get to work their way through it. And that really, when I use that in a classroom, really highlights that, yeah, you've understood the process of you know, addition or subtraction or whatever it may be, but you, you've understood the process. Yeah. Um, and that isn't a process. It's an understanding. So we need to be giving students opportunities to really feel that and to understand that the numbers are actually a thing they're a meaningness and we can manipulate that meaningness to suit our needs and sometimes when we teach math to the process um students have that misconception that it's no longer a meaningless numbers actually a process that i just follow yeah um, uh, yeah i like that you mentioned that because that's a real big um, area that i try and push in schools when i work with them yeah and i think that too is part of that problem that i think as the years goes on and and things get more challenging for students in school, when it's seen, I think, as just a process and you just follow this algorithm, that when things get hard, mathematics, you know, you have that mindset often with students around, I'm not good at maths, like yeah. I don't like maths because it's too hard. And Yeah. And it's fun, like I was saying earlier, with these, these five proficiency strands in our curriculum, like I said, we've got understanding, fluency, reasoning, problem solving. But the research suggests this position, which is exactly what you're saying, that seeing myself as a doer of mathematics, and when it does get hard, what do I do? do you know, if I follow a process and the process no longer works, well, then I'm stuck. I don't know what yeah. to do. Um, sometimes if I follow that process, don't realise I followed it incorrectly, um, I build a misconception around something and that becomes a problem as well. So mm. hence why we need to be exploring problems so students can feel, and I keep saying feel mathematics, and what I mean by that is that they can 
understand how mathematics works in their world. Because, yes, it's numbers, but it's also many things. It's shapes, it's data, it's statistics. There's so much in it. Um, but we want our students to feel mathematics so then they become mathematicians. And that looks different for every learner. Um, and I explore and understand maths in different ways. I totally get that. But everyone, everyone experiences maths and everyone gets to explore it. So we just look at it in different ways. Yeah. And I think it's also important too to connect it to other learning areas. So it's not just maths doesn't just sit in isolation. Like you said, we use it in everyday life for an enormous amount of things. So to be able to see it, you know, that I, I, as a scientist, I use maths and, you know, yeah. as an artist, you use maths. Yeah. Well, it's amazing because we just had a design expo here at my school and uh, we invited parents in this afternoon. It was a really nice experience for everyone. Um, and within that, our students were designing or redesigning a playground that could possibly have in our school. And the richness of maths in that, so they were using, you know, they were using 3D printers, they were designing, going through a design process, but all of a sudden they had to collect data because they wanted to find out what other playground students liked and, you know, was a slide the most popular, was the swing the most popular, what, you know, how do we collect that information, but also how do we sort it and how do we present it in a way that's easy to read and understand? But then they're also going outside with trundle wheels and trying to measure the area of the space they had to work with and if they could fit a slide and where it went and, you know, um, how much it was going to cost. And there's this huge amount of maths in that. And it just became organic and natural and students were really um, excited by that. And, and it got to, I was working with one classroom the other week and it got to you know, decimals and started exploring decimals and how they work because they had something to use it with. Mm. Uh, and that, yes, there was explicit teacher around decimals and how they work, and especially with the um, creating graphs, there was a lot of percentages within that and we had some explicit teacher around that. But the richness was in exploring that in a, in a real life for them scenario, which they loved sharing tonight with their parents and the rest of the school, which is really nice to see. Yeah it provides that meaning like it's not just yeah. I'm sitting here solving a bunch of problems that have no purpose yeah. like I'm just going through the motions but it actually gives them a reason and can see that oh mathematics is important and I can use it to share you know and share it with others yeah right. so you mentioned a little bit about problem solving what role do you think problem solving plays in the mathematics classroom? Um, well, for me, problem solving is actually how we develop mathematical proficiency. Um, and, and the reason why I say that is those steps that I just mentioned earlier, so if we actually explicitly teach our students how to problem solve, so we teach them that, you know, when I'm, when I'm got a problem in front of me, First thing I need to do is understand the problem. I do that by reading it, you know, highlighting the relevant information, not worrying about the irrelevant information. I then need to choose a strategy. So I might draw a picture for this one because that's how I'm feeling that I can probably solve it. But I might have to guess, check and improve. Or I might make a list or a table. You know, it's really up to me at that point. And then I take action. I give it a go, see if it's working. And if it's not, I might adapt or change. And then once I've solved the problem, I look back and then I explain, justify, share my solution. So if we teach our students that when we're dealing with a problem, that's, you know, I don't want to use the word process, but they're the steps I take when I solve a problem. They're the metacognitive strategies I'm using. Um, well, when the, those first two steps of when I need to understand the problem and identify what's irrelevant and relevant, well, that's me showing um, my understanding of the problem, one of our first proficiency strands. And that's you as a teacher helping me to unpack that understanding of proficiency strands. 
when I select a problem-solving strategy and then take action, well, that's me um, showing my fluency because within that, yes, fluency is about, you know, knowing your times tables and your 10 stacks and things like that. But fluency is also being able to, you know, choose a strategy and see if it works and doesn't work and seeing how you can adapt it and change it if you need to. Yeah. Um, when I look back and explain and justify and share my solutions, well, I'm having to reason. That's me, the teacher, teaching my students, but also them developing their reasoning, which is another proficiency strength. When I put all those things together, I'm actually problem solving now and I'm learning how to problem solve. Um, so as a teacher, that's me supporting my students um, and helping them develop that fourth proficiency strand of problem solving. Yeah. So when we put all that together, well, now we're developing mathematical proficiency in our classroom, sometimes with just one problem. Um, now that fifth proficiency strand of disposition well, we need to create a classroom culture for that. So we, we know there's a heap of work around, you know, growth mindset and, you know, um, that idea of yes and things like that. Great strategies. I love James Nottingham's learning kit um, and using that as an analogy when I work in classrooms. Um, and that's how we build that fifth disposition because that needs to happen all the time. That just doesn't happen in our math classrooms. Um, but the way we can develop those other four proficiency strands with disposition is by teaching our students, well, when we problem solve, we go through these six stages um, and really teaching our students that how do we do that and unpacking the thinking that takes place when we do that. Um, and I actually use things like graphic organisers. I've got a, a graphic organiser that supports students in, in going through those stages and allowing or giving, providing them opportunities to unpack their thinking at each of those stages. And yes, we might need to model that thinking sometimes for some of our students, especially if it's very early on in their problem solving journey. Um, yeah. But at some point, we want them to have some independent practice where they, you know, try being problem solvers um, on, on their own. Yeah, no, I love that. And I love that you talk about the need to, you know, really heavily support and guide that in the beginning. And it's almost, you know, that gradual release model where eventually you take away those scaffolds when the students are more confident to implement that yeah. without that heavy level of support. Yeah, and, and it's funny you mentioned gradual release because I love the work of um, Lynn Sheridan. She's got a gradual release and acceptance of responsibility. Um, so she talked about um, model practice, shared practice, guided practice, independent application, and then um, student application. And how I see that is they're moves we can make as a teacher because for some of our learners, they may need that model practice. So we might have a group of students that we're doing some model practice with, whether it is choosing a strategy or whether it is unpacking that strategy or whether it is going through those problem-solving steps. We might have a group who still need model practice. We might have a group who need just some shared practice, but we're doing it together. Um, we might even have a group that has some guided practice. So, you know, we do it along, we talk our way through and we talk about the metacognition around it. But then what we want to get to a point is that we have a majority within our classroom that can have that independent practice or even student application. That when I've got a problem in front of me, I know how to deal with it. Um, and we can support them through, well, one being those problem-solving steps, um, yeah. but through that graphic organiser I mentioned you know, a couple of minutes ago, one way that I find really powerful in doing that and allowing for that independence around it is through that graphic organiser to support them to unpack that thinking. Mm. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, you've mentioned explicit instruction and you've mentioned rich tasks. Is it a either or or is it, you know, and more, you know, explicit instruction and rich tasks? 
What's that your thoughts? Is, what's your thinking? Love, I love this debate at the moment. I'm like, especially on social media, I sit there at night and, and see all the comments that have been made and I spill my, you know, bucket of popcorn and just yeah. love it. Um, <laughs> gee, uh, it isn't, and I think it's going to be a debate for a very, very long time. And I think I remember being beauty myself and it being a debate. Um, it's, it, we need both. Um, you know, I was listening to your, your podcast with Nathaniel Swain and I love, love his thoughts around, you know, the science of learning and, and I'm constantly, he's sharing posts and I'm constantly reading it because I, I think he's a really strong voice in that area and, and a really intelligent voice in that area um, and a real systematic way of thinking about it too, which I yeah. like being a maths person. Uh, <laughs> hot topic, we, we need both. Yeah. Um, we just need to know when's the right time for each. Um, one being that that Lynn Sharon model that I spoke about, that gradual release and acceptance responsibility. I, I I know that a lot of schools use GRR as their lesson structure, but what I suggest is that you use that gradual release and respect, um, sorry, that gradual release and acceptance of responsibility model as moves you make as a teacher, mm. and, you're, and even pre-planning these moves, like knowing that I'm going to need to do some model practice for this group, but then as a teacher, I know that those kids are going to be able to, you know explore some independent practice in that and that's how I structure my lesson um now within that I see maths as a real I look at maths as a strategy approach um and what I mean by that is um strategies you know let's say I don't know um multiplication um and I I haven't thought of this ahead of time but I probably should have but um let's use multiplication as an example there's more sophisticated ways to explore multiplication and there's more surface level ways so for example if i'm looking at three times two i might draw you know three groups of two you know, three circles two in each group and then count one by one how many i've got as we that, that's one strategy as we make our way through our learning we tend to then okay well three times two yes it's three groups of two but then i might skip count by two so two four six um, as we get better with our understanding, as we become more fluid and build our understanding, solve problems around that, I might use an array or a region to show that. So I've got, you know, uh, an array with three rows of two. And I'm able to show communitivity by turning that around and seeing that two times three is the same as three times two. I then might start to deal with more difficult problems or more challenging problems by the size of the number. So I might have two-digit number by a two-digit number and I might use a lattice or a grid method where I have to partition the numbers into tens and ones and multiply my tens and multiply those ones. And I love using like a grid method to do that because it really shows how you can unpack that and explore that. It's then finally that I can start to explore the algorithm and make a connection to that grid method that I've used um, to see how an algorithm is actually much more efficient. But I've done all the learning before that I've explored mm. groups of. I know communitivity. I know how partitioning helps me to solve multiplication problems. So how I see a math classroom is that we need to probably be explicitly teaching those strategies. Mm. And as a teacher, yes, we're allowed to let our students explore in, you know, problem solving. But if we notice, you know, they don't quite understand communitivity, well, at that point, I'm going to start using some, you know, um, some arrays and start exploring doing some explicit teacher around arrays with those students so they can understand communitivity because hopefully they know groups of and if they don't know groups of well then I might need to go back to that but so as you can see as a teacher I need to know developmentally what strategy comes first because if I'm 
if I'm in a classroom and I teach my students how to use a lattice method, let's say, um, but they don't know groups of, well, it's not fair to them. They're not going to mm. be able to, they're just going to learn that as a process. Yeah. And we know that, like I said earlier, process is just something you follow and you don't build an understanding. So as a teacher, I need to know what each of those strategies are. And it's okay for my students to sit along that continuum. I just need to support them where they're at and try and get them to that next strategy and understand how that next strategy works. Once they become proficient um, and skilled in knowing and understanding not only how to use that strategy, but also understand how it works. Yep. I think that's it's fascinating that you say that because I think multiplication and division, that that strand of mathematics in, in number and place value is really an area that is I find is taught in so many different ways and often like you said you know looking at those strategies and how each one builds along that continuum I think oftentimes that's missed yeah in the mathematics classroom and you often hear um you know oh the kids just need to know their times tables by rote and Oh, I just find it fascinating having discussions with teachers around the area of multiplication for that reason. Yeah, and, and it's a lot of those operations are a funny one because we've sort of in education, we've sort of got this mindset, oh, you know, like multiplication, I'll use it as an example. Um, but, you know, you know, in year one and two, they need to understand groups of, and then in year three, they need to understand this, and then in year four, they need to understand, you know, arrays or whatever it may be. And I'm suggesting, yeah, developmentally, you're right. At that age, they probably should be unpacking those and exploring those. But if they don't have the groups of in year three or year four, well, we, we do need to go back to it. We need to get them to understand the, the meaningness of number and how they can manipulate and work with number before they get into that next strategy. So I see that as a developmental continuum just as much as a, any other continuum that we would explore within our classrooms. Mm, yeah. No, it's fascinating. How do you effectively and efficiently teach and assess mathematical proficiency? Oh, this is part another loaded love. question. <laughs> <laughs> this is really the part I love because um, to be able to do this, you need to have all those other things in place. So I mentioned, yeah. I mentioned, you know, you need to have problems within your classroom. You need to have enabling extending prompts. Students need to know how to use strategies and what the strategies are. Um, they need the language around that. They need to know how to problem solve. So, you know, understand the problem, identify what's relevant, choose, um, choose a strategy, take action, look back, explain, justify and share. Um, now, when they've got all those things in place, depending on the pedagogical focus of your school. So I know a lot of schools use things like learning intentions and success criteria. So I'm use that as an example. Um, for me, if we're teaching our students how to problem solve, um, that's our learning intention. Mm. Yes, it may be a fraction task. Yes, it may be a shape task. Yes, it may be an addition task. Hopefully, it's a bit of a few things because that's what a problem is. Um, but my learning intention is, you know, let's use the language of we are learning to. We are learning to solve problems. Yeah. Now, if that's our learning intention, in actual fact, our success criteria is, you know, I can understand the problem. I can identify the relevant information. I can select a problem-solving strategy. I can take action and accept the problem. I can look back to see if I've solved the problem and I can explain my thinking and justify my solution. Now, I'm sounding like a bit of a broken record here, but those things that I just mentioned, those I can statements, those six I can statements, they're those problem-solving steps that I just 
spoke about. Mm. Um, so what's nice about that is that I call them evergreen learning intentions success criteria because that's what we're focusing on. We're learning how to become problem solvers and we do that by showing and explaining how we go through each of those steps. So they become our success criteria because um, our success criteria should be opportunities for students to do and say what the learning intention is hoping for them to do and say. Um, so then when we explore problems and we think about success criteria in that way, well then when I'm engaging in a problem, I'm actually unpacking those proficiency strands. Yeah. Because as I said earlier, they link directly, those steps that I just went through, they link directly to our proficiency strands. So I'm thinking about teaching and assessing, well, let's think about teaching firstly. Um, if these become my learning intention and success criteria, that's me teaching my students how to problem solve, therefore teaching them how to become proficient in mathematics, therefore teaching them how to become mathematicians. Yeah. Um, now, when I come to assess it, there's a, you know, a multitude of really rich ways we do that within our classrooms. We might traffic light those success criteria. Um, we might get students goal setting around that success criteria. We might have students, you know, um, we might create anchor charts within our classroom of exemplars around those success criteria and that students can talk about within their classroom. What I also think about with those success criteria is we can develop rubrics around those. Um, and with each of those success criteria, we actually develop, well, what does it look like from limited through to advanced? Yeah. But then what we're actually doing is we're unpacking each of those four proficiency strands of understanding, fluency, reasoning, and problem solving as a continuum themselves, or as a progression, or as a group. And we can actually assess it now. We can actually look for what we're meant to be looking for. Yes, the students meant to, you know, maybe add in this problem, or they may be, you know, they're meant to be using a number line in some way to solve it. But what else are they doing? Are they showing that they've understood the problem? Are they showing me how they've, you know, identified the relevant information? Are they selecting a problem-solving strategy? And how are they using that problem-solving strategy? Have they looked back? Um, and last but not least, are they able to explain or justify and share their thinking in some way? Um, and when they're the things that we actually look for, we're not only developing mathematical proficiency, but if I plan my lessons in that way and I collect data in that way, I'm actually assessing mathematical proficiency at the same time. Yeah. And I really like the way that you've tied it into learning intention success criteria, but the focus is not necessarily on the content that you're exploring through that problem, but through the proficiencies and the, and that problem solving strategy itself. Yeah. And it, I like the fact that it's decontextualizes it. Then it's not reliant on just this one lesson. I can then use that at various times through the week, through the, you know, through a, a learning sequence to support my students in developing that proficiency. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that you've captured that because, that's exactly what I'm, I'm trying to get across here, that the focus is to be a problem solver. Mm. Yes, content is important. Don't get me wrong. As I said earlier, there's, there's this balance of explicit teacher around content but also around problem solving. Um, but my theory is that, well, yeah, we should probably be explicitly teaching how to problem solve, one, you know, that being one thing. But to do that, we need to you know, have learning intention success criteria around what that looks like. Yeah. Um, so really, yeah, it's really nice that you've also captured that and been able to explain it. That's, that's, I guess, the message I'm trying to get across. That I call it evergreen because it's always, whenever yeah. we're problem solving, this is how we're problem solving, this is the learning intention for it. Yeah. Um, and, and that 
we do that all the time um, yeah. and that's how we solve problems yeah no I love that and I hadn't thought about doing it that way prior so I've definitely got a key takeaway <laughs> that I'm going to take back to my context and work with my teachers around flipping that thinking and yeah. and looking at it that way I really like that what's if you had to pick one problem solving strategy or or something that a teacher could pick up and implement in their classroom tomorrow what would be your tip um you know the thing the one that i find i think i still use it as an adult which is uh i don't know if it's a good thing or ever a bad thing um is guest checking improves yep um it's a really basic um in a good way basic a really easy way to unpack um a problem um, because a lot of the time when we solve a problem, and, and this is the thing, we need to have a rich problem when we do guess check and improve, um, but a lot of the times in mathematics, we need to make an educated guess, I, yeah, in the nicest way to put it. We need to think about how we're going to solve this problem and then, you know, see if it works, and if it doesn't, you know, and that's what I mean by the check phase, if it doesn't, well, then how do I improve it in some way? And a good example I had the other day is I had a group of, I think it was year five students working on, they had three consecutive numbers that needed to add up to a, to another number. Yep. And they a lot of the students knew that, well, I needed to divide that number by three to have three numbers, but they were really struggling with that consecutive, you know, one needs to come before the other. And, yep. and we unpacked what it meant and they, they got that. But there was this real guess check and improving at that phase. You know, they had three numbers. Yes, they were close to the number. When they added them, they were close to the number they needed. Because um, what a lot of them were doing is they were halving the, the sum. So basically three numbers added together that were consecutive equals, you know, let's say 156 or 150. They halved that and worked with that number. Yeah. And it was really interesting to see because they their guess was a good guess. It was okay to work with. But how do I check and improve that? And what do I need to do to manipulate that within my classroom? And that can look very different in each of the classrooms. But um if I were unpacking problem solving in my classroom, I'd probably start with that one. Yeah. Um, but what's really important here is um, in our schools, we need a common language. Mm-hmm. So one being that, le- that that learning intention success criteria was one way that we can get that language happening because I don't want a student in year three, their next year to be in year four, and it's a totally new world for them and the teacher uses something different. So we need consistency of language, one thing. But we also need some kind of, once again, a scope and sequence around the strategies that we think are developmentally appropriate at each year level. Mm. Uh, so guess and check, guess check and improve is probably one that, you know, starts very early on, even in foundation, but moves, gets a little bit more sophisticated as the year go, years go on. But then others are more inclined to, you know, year five and six, and that's okay. We just need to make sure that those year five, six students have guess check and improve in their toolkit because when they were in year four, three, two, and one, and even in foundation, they were exploring it there. Um, yeah. so hence why we need a consistency of language. But as a school, we should probably be developing a bit of a scope and sequence around, well, what strategies are more appropriate at each year level? And how do we ensure that when they are in year six, that they've unpacked and used all of them? So when they go into high school, they're, they're leaving with that toolkit. Mm. Yeah, no, I really love that. And I know I've got so many takeaways from our chat on this episode, having that mathematical toolkit and knowing that continuum of when it's developmentally appropriate for students to be accessing that or or building that in their toolkit, I think is a big takeaway for me. 
Um, linking that learning intention success criteria to problem solving and looking at it through that lens is another big, big takeaway for me. Oh, there were so many. Enabling and extending prompts for rich and challenging tasks. I could go on and on, but I am so thankful, Paul, for you joining us on the Teacher Takeaway podcast for this episode. No, it's been great. I, um, as I said, I could probably talk for hours and hours, and I think I've only just scratched the surface here, to be honest. <laughs> um, I, I can talk, but I sort of stopped myself. If you notice, know, my conversation ends at some point. like, no, no, you need to stop here because now you're saying too much. So, really- <laughs> Well, I know our listeners will have many key takeaways, just as I have from our chat today so i do thank you for joining us and as always listeners you can catch us and reach out to us on our socials twitter instagram and facebook keep your positive feedback messages coming in we are loving reading those and all of the suggestions you have for future episodes that's our episode done thanks for joining me paul and we will see you listeners on our next episode bye for now